You're listening to the Sound Girls Podcast with Tori and Katie. Today's episode features an interview with TV sound supervisor Marla McGuire. Marla McGuire has worked as a sound editor and supervising sound editor for over 20 years in television and film and has worked on over 70 feature and episodic titles. As such, she has seen the many changes the industry has gone through, from 24-track tape to the various digital workstations battling to become the industry standard. She's experienced the evolution to where we are today with Pro Tools. She started her career working as a part of the production sound team on TV movies. This has proven to be invaluable to her career in post-sound. She has recently served as a supervising sound editor for the long-running series Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder, as well as the highly acclaimed Showtime Limited series Your Honor. Marla has been nominated for two Primetime Emmys for her work on Dead by Sunset and See Jane Run, and also nominated for three MPSC Golden Reel Awards for Jean-Claude Van Johnson, Prep and Landing, and Commander-in-Chief. Welcome, Marla. Woo! Welcome! Woo! Hi! So nice to have you here on the Sound Girls podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure to have you here. I guess to get things rolling, we'll ask my favorite question, which is, why sound? How did you get started in your gig? Well, uh, when I was growing up, I I was a dancer and an actor uh, growing up in San Diego. And my parents really enjoyed the performing arts and took me to all kinds of theater and stuff. And um, at some point, I realized that I'd rather be behind the camera than in front of the camera. Um, And I took this technical television class when I was 14 years old at San Diego Junior Theater and I was just riveted to behind the camera and zooming in and zooming out and editing and stuff and so I went to San Diego State and I got a degree in film and television. My boyfriend at the time was majoring in sound design for theater. I just found what he was doing super fascinating and um, so I ended up like being the sound person for other student films and I was doing a lot of video Like, through my college years, I was working at KPBS in San Diego, um, directing pledge breaks and doing all the camera positions and doing EMG, like shoots with, you know, news crews and different things, Um, large-scale remote trucks where we'd go out and we'd do like a football game or whatever. So I was really heavily into the video side of things. And then I got a job in L.A., doing similar type things, satellite uplinks and control rooms type type stuff. But that job was at a place called Compact Video. And I had I was forced to join the union, and that was 695 at the time. And before that, rewinding a little bit, through college, I got to intern at Sundance um, as a ticket taker. And I met a woman named Lisa Hackett, and she knew that I wanted to do... Um, sound editing and she got me a gig on a production sound crew that was in San Diego and it was a HBO film called The Heist with Pierce Brosnan and um, so I was the PA but I was on the sound crew and um, the production mixer and the boom guy Steve Nelson is the production mixer and the boom guy was Tom Hardy and I just learned a lot they hazed me too which was kind of interesting (laughs) more about that later and maybe another discussion but uh, we kept in contact, and then years later, because um, once I was working at Compact Video, I kept in touch with Steve, 
and he called me and he said, um, hey, listen, the union is teaching a class on something called the Cyberframe, which was a digital workstation. Because at the time, there were like 10 different DAWs, digital audio workstations. Like there was the Dawn and AMS Audiophile and a Synclavier and Fairlight and everything was competing. So Pro Tools hadn't risen to the top yet. But he said, uh, hey, so the union is giving a class trying to teach older sound editors to transition from, at that point, 24-track to digital. Why don't you call them and say you want to take the class? And I said, well, I'm not a sound editor, because at the time, I remember, I was doing broadcast engineering. He's like, well, they don't know that. And I said, you mean lie? He's like, just <laughs> call them and tell them you want to take the class. I was like, all right. So I was like really nervous. So I got into the class. I didn't really ask. I just asked what my union qualification was. So that class was taught at Sony Studios um, by a, a dialogue editor. Uh, and basically what was happening was Sony was growing, like the, the sound department was really growing. And they wanted to, in addition to teaching editors the cyberframe, wanted to maybe cherry pick a few people to be assistants in that department. Um, and I was just so riveted to the whole thing. It was non-destructive editing, you know, and, and at the time that was just a super new novel concept. But the whole take lived there, but it was only playing from here to here, but you could handle out. And, and I was just like, my eyes were popping out of my head and I just thought it was a close thing. Um, so I got a call back from Barry Snyder, who was the head of that sound department, saying that I was somebody who might be able to pick it up and did I want to come in for probation? So I I did, and I was working both places, Compact Video and Sony. And Compact Video was in Burbank, and Sony's in Culver City. So I was working like 20 hours a day <laughs> for about a month. And then I quit the job at Compact Video. And basically, I worked my way up from starting out as, as an assistant in the sound department at Sony. So then once you got to Sony, then what were your next steps as you were growing uh, and moving up in sound? Well, one of the things, and this kind of gets back to one of the questions I know you'll probably ask about people wanting to get in and advice and that kind of thing, is, well, first thing is just listen. Just listen and learn and learn and learn and learn. Ask questions, you know, put in extra time, put in your extra time, do your research. But also one of the main things is to tell people what it is you want to do. So I was like, you know, 26 or something and an assistant and, and I was working in a movie studio. I was so excited. I mean, like that, but I was working night shift. That's the other thing I would tell people to do is, is go ahead and, you know, put in your dues. You know, I was working five at night till four in the morning and, and that's what you have to do. But in addition to paying your dues, I was an assistant, but the first thing I did, well, actually, let me back up for a second. So Barry Snyder actually took a job at Warner Brothers and took half the department with him. And one of the supervisors, supervising senators got promoted to running the department. And first thing he did was he promoted me to organizing and being in charge of all the assistants. And when he did that, I said, listen, I know this is way too early and way premature, but I just want you to know that down the line, like maybe years from now, I'd like to be a supervisor. Like that's generally where I want to go. But, but again, I, I'm not expecting anything to happen right away, but I just want you to know. So I planted that seed. And I find these days, like I have to like, really ask young people what it is they want to do. Like they're super shy. Like if they're working at the receptionist desk or whatever, Technicolor, you know, like I'll strike up a conversation to try to pull out of them what they want to do. But if, if you can show up, there's a way of doing it. I think where it's not off-putting, you know what I mean? Where you're not being a pest, but you're just stating what it is you want to do. 
So basically, I was assisting on Mad About You, the original one. I love that you um, had to clarify that. But yeah, I mean, that really is the real Mad About You. <laughs> the real one, yes. And so I was an assistant on that one. And then I became a dialogue editor and then effects editor on that show. That sitcom was done differently than most sitcoms. Like most sitcoms just have like a four hour prelay and then, you know, it's kind of down and dirty. But this one, like, there was a full assembly and a full effects build and a full fully uh, walked. So it was kind of cool in that way. So it was a good training ground. So basically, once the supervisor moved on, I already knew those producers. So when Greg was like, well, how about Marla? They were like, oh, yeah. So it made sense for me to supervise Mad About You. And so then, okay, that wasn't that scary because I already knew the show and I knew the producers and I kind of knew what the gig was. I mean, the hardest thing, and I know you guys realize this, but is like getting in the union, one thing, but I just mentioned how I circumvented and kind of got in. Um, But the other thing is how to give, how to get people to give you a shot, because if you don't have the credits, they're not going to give you a shot. But how can you get the shot if you don't have the credits? It's like you have to show up and just kind of be a sponge and just listen and learn. And that's, I mean, that's how I got a lot of opportunities or that's why I found valuable. Yeah. So like, so making that jump between, you know, sitcom to one hour dramas, I had been an assistant on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and the supervising sound editor on that. And I've only ever seen this once, but he actually moved up from being supervising sound editor to being an associate producer um, which again, I've never really seen that. So he got bumped up to associate producer on a TV show called The Net. And it was a, it was a TV version of the film, The Net. So I got to work with Tim Curry, which was fun. When Greg pitched me to Larry, Larry had already worked with me as an assistant. And so he was like, sure, I'll give him, I'll give her a shot. So, and you know, once you have your first credit, then it's easier to, to get more. Well, how did that first shot go like obviously you didn't blow it um but what is- well it's funny you say that it's funny you say that because greg jacobs my first adr session i'd never shot adr and i don't know why he said this to me but he looked me in the eyes as i was about to go shoot adr he's like you know you could fail other than maybe he just wanted to push my buttons so you know just so that I absolutely wouldn't fail. I don't know, but so you didn't fail. He didn't. He didn't mess you up, I guess. And you like what was hard in the beginning, I guess, like getting your head around everything. How did that go? What was hard was I had moved up through the ranks as a twenty-something woman in the nineties, and so people at Sony still saw me as an assistant. So when I was on the dub stage overseeing the mix, like I didn't feel like I had earned or gained their trust or respect. And so I really had, and same thing with the editors. Like there was a few male editors who just gave me a really rough time because we had just worked side by side and now I was their boss. Um, and that didn't go over well. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's, it's starting from there working with your team. It's like, oh, okay, now, you know, you've been our peer and yeah, getting used to that transition is always interesting. But what's interesting now is that, you know, 20 years later, I go back to Sony and I'll be on a panel or something and I get all the respect in the world. I guess that's how things work. Sometimes you have to, I think, leave and come back to get the respect. 
you know? And when you leave and you go somewhere else, yeah. When I left and I went other places, they didn't know me as 27-year-old assistant. They knew me as a new supervisor coming in. So I got respect. I hit the ground running at any new place. Um, and then it just went on from there. And then, you know, I also think over the years, I mean, there's still sexism, but, but, but it's a lot less. Um, and it just hasn't, as the years have gone by, that just seems to be not an issue. Or at least not that I can tell. I mean, I, I totally feel that. So I've been with Disney for 10 years now. And when I first came in, you know, I did what you said. You, you just come in, you pay your dues, you roll a boulder, you know, you do what you need to do. You do the grunt work. But, you know, and then, you know, you start and you, you know, you just learn, you listen, you just gradually work up. But I always found myself, and I still do today, you know, in the minority where it's like, oh, you know, here's a group of crew chiefs and three of them are guys and then here's Tori or here's an event and it's all guys and then here's Tori. But through the years, like you said, you know, with whatever part of audio you're in or whatever discipline you're in, you know, you start to establish credibility and people get to see who you are, which is really cool through your work. And also, I, and I guess it makes some sort of sense, but I feel like as you get older and more established in your career, you get more respect, whether you're female or male. So if you're a young woman, then it's kind of a double whammy. Ruth Edelman is a sound supervisor. And we were at a barbecue one time and we were both talking about our careers. And it was really comforting to see she had the same approach to sexism, if there is approach, as I did, which was to kind of ignore it, to kind of like not ignore it to the point where I'm a bad person for not acknowledging that it exists, but just in my own path, just being impervious to it, just being like, you know what, this is who I am and I'm moving through the world and I'm developing skills and hopefully a, a pleasing personality and an ability to work with others. And, and I'm just shutting out the noise that is anything that is smacking of sexism. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not having it. And, and so she was the same way. And it was almost like if we showed up as somebody who was not going to cower and be a victim and at all be affected by it, it kind of didn't show up in our world. And again, that's coupled with life moving on and the years going by and society changing slightly as well. So I think that's really good advice. I think it's a good approach. Approach to sexism. I like that. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Like, I want to ask about your approach to being a supervising sound editor, but first we'll talk about the approach to <laughs> sexism. Um, how did you become like a great leader while you're honing your craft? Because you supervising sound editors are very good at everything, and then they're also overseeing the team, right? So how did that all come together for you? Well, kind of going back to my childhood a little bit, I'm an only child, and so... Me too. I spent a lot of... Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. I spent a lot of time by myself in my room being creative. Like I wrote a little comic strip in my room. I would like redesign my room. Um, I mean, like, I, I just, wrote like, a Brady Girls sitcom because I didn't have any guy friends at the time, but I was 13 anyway. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time alone, but then I also spent a lot of time socializing because my parents wanted me to be socialized. So I was in Girl Scouts and in the church group and in, you know, dance classes and junior theater and all this stuff. So point being... Supervisor for me is the perfect job because I spend a lot of time in my room alone creating, you know, queuing ADR, queuing Foley, editing. But then I spend a large amount of time interacting with people and being gregarious and outgoing. 
um, you know, with the loop group, you know, I'm overseeing them. That's like herding cats, but it's also really, a, <laughs> it's also really, really fun. Um, working with the actors um, and ADR, uh, being on the dub stage, which is super interesting. And there are so many landmines in being a supervisor. Not having anything to do with the technical aspect or the creative aspect, but having to do with diplomacy and politics and what to say and what not to say. And what a story. Ooh, give, us, give us a little <laughs> bit of that. I'm intrigued. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I'll just say in general, an overarching quote that I love is, better to be silent and thought a fool than speak and remove all doubt. Because again, it's better to be listening at all times. Um, but it, it, is a, it is a delicate balance because, you know, like at the spotting session, for example, if I don't know the people, like if I somehow got hired on a job where I don't really know the executive producers or even the post producer or the editor or whatever, I have to balance interjecting enough so that they're confident in me and know that I know what I'm doing but not taking up all the oxygen in the room when there's these big personalities in the room. You know what I mean? So like, for example, when I'm, I did, I've done a lot of Shonda Rhimes shows and every once in a while she would be in the room at the spotting session. But at that point I had nothing really to prove. I'd been working, you know, on her shows for like 10 years. So right. I didn't say a word at the yeah. spotting sessions because their time is so valuable. And uh, you know, I'm just listening and taking notes and, you know, although there was one moment, I'll tell you one funny story where she, she was in the spotting session because she wrote the script and it was a really important episode of Scandal. And she turned to me and she said, don't fuck it up. And I looked at her. And I was like, I didn't know what to say. I mean, a part of me wanted to get cocky and go, do I ever? But I did not say that. I just smiled and nodded. Um, that was that. But yeah, um, politics on the dub stage. It's just, there's a lot of really big personalities in this industry. And again, going back <laughs> to that, that only child thing is like, you know, you interact with adults a lot when you're a kid and you're an only child. And so you have that skill set of being a chameleon a little bit, I think. Um, I definitely get along for with me, people older than me. That's, yeah. That's my group. Yeah. yeah. But even as a kid, I'm sure you did, mm -hmm. right? Like you were probably precocious. And... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. I had to guess. In a good way. In a good way. Um, of course. But so you kind of have to be a chameleon. In other words, like when I'm with the loop group, I have to meet them at their level. And their level is energetic and funny and personable and gregarious, you know, and you also have to kind of like wrangle them and be mindful of what they need. And actors are delicate flowers. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> and I say that with love. And even if they're not actors, even if they're producers, you really need to take the temperature of the room and see what everybody needs and how you can accommodate what everybody needs. So even if, like for example, a lot of times the executive producer is too busy to really be in on most of what I've done leading up to the dub stage. And they'll just kind of sail in on the last day of the mix and we'll do playback and they'll give their notes and they'll leave. And this doesn't always happen, but, but sometimes it'll happen where I'll be introduced to them and they'll almost disregard me because 
the mixers are the ones that are center stage and the mixers are the ones that are, you know, doing all the work at that time. And so, you know, I'll really get the idea that they think the mixers did everything. They don't know who I am or what I did. You're just someone who's in the room for some reason. They don't, yeah, God. (laughs) But you know what? I actually, I've made peace with that. I I don't really mind that. A, because it doesn't happen that often. And B, because my reward is kind of being silently overseeing all of it and making sure it's all running smoothly. So I don't need to like take credit or this and that. I mean, same thing with, just as a side note, protecting my editors. You know, if the editors do something really well or if something's like like sound effects, sound design, or even a dialogue alt or whatever, I'll mention their name and I will like say, oh yeah, man, wasn't that great that Tim did that, you know? But then if there's a mistake, I'll tend to, t- to own the mistake. And the reason, even if it's not me who made the mistake, because I already have a relationship with these people, which means if I, oh man, oops, we missed that line. I missed that line. Let me get it. You know, sorry about that. Like they're apt to forgive me and move on. But if, if somebody they don't know, the editor in the back room, you know, then, then there'll be a, like a black mark against them. So I was going to say that would really just mark them for their whatever they want to do next in in their career. Yeah. So I think I think as a supervisor, one characteristic that I try to always cultivate is that of making everybody else look good. You know what I mean? I totally get it. I'm so intrigued because I know we're talking about we're talking about film, we're talking about TV, we're talking about you know, we're talking about editing and that's more of Katie's specialty uh, than mine. But everything that you're saying really connects with me in live sound because with the performers, you know, you want to give them what they need to be able to do their job well every single time that they come and, you know, you know, perform for for the guests. And as a crew chief, um, which would be a lead um, in our discipline, you know, I feel like I'm the one who is, you know, that point person in between the performers and the technicians. And if a technician does something really well, you do want to honor them and you want to make sure that they shine. And, but at the same time, it's like, if something goes wrong or something needs to be addressed, then, you know, it's your responsibility to take that on yourself and address it and just see, okay, how can I help you moving forward so that we both have the best product that we need to, you know, give to our guests. Um, But even, you know, I found, you know, we were talking about, you know, some, you know, some actors, you know, maybe a little, you know, more vocal than others. Um, but I love those opportunities because, you know, you get a chance to just listen to them, or at least what I've experienced. You get to sit and listen to them to see what they need. And really, it, it's a challenge. And you're like, okay, you know, I, I'm glad that you gave me this feedback. So I know, okay, what can I do? I really want to think, how can I make this product better to help you? And, and then when you get to that end result, it's just, it's so rewarding. And I'll even say a skill set that I've tried to cultivate, and I think this, this would be applicable across all disciplines, and that is really getting a sense of who somebody is and what they need. And meaning like, even in the difference between my two bosses at Sony, Barry and Greg, Barry was the type where if you walked into his office, you needed to make small talk for a while. And Greg was somebody who you needed to cut to the chase. So if you went in and tried to make small talk with Greg, that's not going to go so well. Or if you tried to cut to the chase with Barry, it's not going to go so well. And same thing with the actors. Like there's some actors who 
are going to be charismatic and they're going to be, you know, it'll behoove you to get to know about their family and just, you know, get to know them. And there's others that they don't want to be there. They want to be in and out. They don't really need to get to know you. They don't want to get to know you. They just want to get in and get out. And so you don't want to take up any of their time. But you need to figure out who's who. My gosh, that's a demanding job. This is the interpersonal. <laughs> we haven't talked technical or creative, and that's so cool. I, I mean, supervising sound editors are, I, I think, that's why it's such a cool job, because you wear so many hats. Well, that's why I love it, too, because, yes, technical is challenging and interesting. Creative is certainly wonderful. Love that. But the personal and the diplomacy and the politics, honestly, is equally weighted. Now, talking about the technical side, how often do you actually get to touch gear and work, uh, you know, on more of the technical side versus the supervisor side? Well, as part of supervising, part of my job is not super technical, but a little technical. Like, you know, like if I'm queuing fully, I'm using Pro Tools, I'm queuing fully. If I'm queuing ADR, I'm using whatever ADR program, and I've got my Pro Tools open, and I'm going through their OMFs and or AAFs, and, which can be a treasure trove of information, by the way, um, to see what the picture department did. That'll help guide you on what they want. You know, and then when I cut the ADR, which I love doing, I love using different programs. Like there's one called Revoice Pro, where I can not only change the timing and the speed, slow it up, slow it down, speed it up, but I can also change the pitch. So I can change like a question to a statement or a statement to a question, you know, by just you know what I mean? Like I just grab the last syllable and and now it sounds like a question. (laughs) Another thing about this industry, like you're never going to get bored ever because the technology is always evolving. And just to go back for a second, I find it super interesting. Like when I was first starting out, I mean, I didn't learn all the DAWs, but like I would learn a little bit about Fairlight or you know, CyberFrame, Pro Tools, because different studios, if you wanted to work different places, you had to know those different systems and the keystrokes would be the exact opposite a lot of times. Um, So that was kind of not fun. So when it became Pro Tools, like, okay, we all understand it's Pro Tools. Then you could just focus on Pro Tools and like right now RX, Isotope RX is fantastic. Oh, yeah. I love so it. it's up to RX8 and like I said, Revoice Pro and what is it? Krotos is like a sound design program that's super cool. There's so many great things. Yeah. It's not crazy how far, because I guess you've seen, yeah, you've seen the changes. So it's kind of, we're spoiled now a little bit with the tools at our disposal. Yeah. And like, you know, one of the things in the past that, you know, I'm glad we're, we're past is, you know, when I started, we were mixing on 24 track. So you couldn't slide things independently. Everything was on that 24 track. So (laughs) I always made this joke that I didn't want to be a mixer because there was math. And what I meant by that is because when you did fixes, you did fixes, you lay them back to D88, which was like an eight track machine that had eight tracks that also couldn't (laughs) slide independently, but, but you could slide the D88 relative to the 24 track. So let's say you wanted to add some dog barks at a certain point in the scene. So you lay back to the D88, you take it to the dub stage, you tell Bubba, the recordist, okay, Bubba, put in the <laughs> put in the D88, blue D88. And 
so at that moment, it would be in sync with the picture, right? Well, if, let's say, they were like, oh, you know what, that's great, the dog barks, let's move it, let's have it also happen at a later scene. So you would create an offset on that D88 for whatever that time code is. So you'd have to, the mixer would have to do the math and write it on their printed cue sheets, right? And then not forget when they went back to the original spot, if they needed to punch in there, if the D88 was still down the road where the later fix was, when you punched in, you wouldn't have those dogs anymore. So they'd have to go back. Bubba, can you offset that D88 by <laughs> an offset? I'm like, okay, there's math. I'm out. But now there's no math. You just have the dog barks in the Pro Tools. You copy them and you paste them. Yeah, and it's there. Wow. Okay, I don't envy um, the job of a mixer back <laughs> in that time. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> So what about creativity, Marla? Like, how do you establish a flavor of a show? And like, what's a specific example of something you're uh, particularly proud of creativity wise? Well, it, it depends on the show, because some shows are just kind of a traffic cop, um, meaning you just basically, they're attached to their temp, and that's going to be it. Uh, but other shows, you can really sink your teeth into the show. And like one example is, is Your Honor, at the very first spot the picture editor michael ruscio really impressed upon me how much input i had so like you know he'd use phrases and i would pick up things like oh we want to feel the heat of new orleans and so i was thinking about that i'm like okay well what if like you know the more affluent a location the less dense the bugs so like in the lower ninth ward it's just like really thick with the cicadas and katydids and the bugs and stuff and then the garden district is a little less and then you know the, the really the mansions and stuff is like barely any bugs at all for example so on that show like he really like it was really really fun because i got to do all kinds of fun stuff like i actually ended up interacting with the production mixer like i reached out to him because it was a break because of covid and so i was had been getting his stuff and I just wanted to say, hey, thank you for the two booms in addition to the body mics. It's great. And so he was like, oh, do you want me to record Rocco's motorcycle? Which is like a thing. Like that's what sets the whole story in motion. And I'm like, sure, if you have time to. So he like went out, recorded the motorcycle and sent it back to me. And, you know, part of creativity for me when I'm allowed are things like callbacks and motifs. So like callbacks would be... You know, after the motorcycle accident, there's like another scene where just some random motorcycle drives by in front of our two main actors. And so I took that motorcycle, Rocco's motorcycle, and I made it that motorcycle, even though it technically wasn't. Just to kind of tie together, you know, Adam and Rocco, they're the same age, and um, you know, Adam kills Rocco in a motorcycle accident accidentally. And then, for example, another example in that show is during that whole death scene, which was really complicated and difficult to do because I had production breaths, I had wild track breaths, uh, had ADR breaths from the actor and group ADR breaths. And, and it was all Adam's asthma. And so I had to weave all of those tracks. And then at the very end of the season one, spoiler alert, Adam dies. And I took Rocco's dying breath and I made it Adam's dying breath. Because again, kind of callback motifs, like another motif would be kind of the, the rhythm of New Orleans. Um, so we had like offstage pile drivers or like overhead freeway, you know, the ba-doom, 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 
you know, like in certain locations. So just finding different rhythmic ways of, of telling a story sonically. How does your job change or does it when you supervise film versus TV? Well, I haven't had the opportunity to, to supervise a big feature. I've done, I've supervised the Foley on big features, but any features that I've supervised have been smaller budget independent films. But having said that, in general, on a feature, you spend a lot of time with the same material. You know, so you spend at least 10 weeks with the film. And a lot of it is conforming because the picture department is, is changing, changing, changing all the time. So you're constantly conforming, conforming, conforming. But because you're spending so much time, you, you really get to work on the same material and just make it perfect. And you also have a ton more tracks and there's a lot more pre-dub days. So, you know, like you could do a Western and there might be 24 tracks of just horse footsteps. You know what I mean? That, that need to get pre-dubbed down into one horse footstep track. Um, <laughs> so, so it's really cool as far as like you have like a ton of tracks. You can really detail stuff out. Like I, I worked on this horror film with Kiefer uh, Sutherland called Mirrors. And um, it's funny. I don't, I don't like horror films, but I love working on them. <laughs> um, but like just even with the footsteps, he's walking through this abandoned uh, department store and some places have like little puddles and some places have like glass debris because it's it's long been abandoned um, and so I had the opportunity to do a lot of different tracks for each footstep so like I would just do you know footstep on cement with dirt add like a little water sweetener and then maybe add a glass sweetener and then especially when like he wades through some water and then he comes out the other side, add another tennis shoe wet squish sweetener. And then I have to, of course, edit all of those things exactly so that they, they 100% line up with each other. And that way, then the mixer can, he can make his tennis shoe wet or dry in that case. You know what I mean? He can add more water, more gush, or then lose it completely if they're like, you know what, I, think, I don't think his shoes would still be wet. Okay, great. I'll, I'll lose that track. Um, so, but on TV, you know, usually you get five days to do a show. Sometimes it's faster than that. Like in Scandal and Murder, a lot of times they would turn over one day and mix the next, which was a complete shit show. Um, <laughs> so that those type of scenarios, you're more traffic cop, just making sure you don't lose any lines of dialogue and you just get everything in. But the cool thing about TV is you get to live with the characters for a long time, Some, sometimes years. And the, and the general arc of the story. But you have a lot less tracks, you know, it's just gotta be a lot quicker. So you have to figure out short shortcuts. Uh, but like on TV, you know, once you establish the locations, like for the backgrounds or whatever, the, the effects editor will make groups, you know, so like Scandal Lives Office, like that's a group of background tracks and the doors and whatever. And so. Basically, maybe they put everything down at hour two or something, and then they've got markers. And then when they get the next show in, they're like, okay, lives office. Okay, great. Boom. Copy, paste, lives office. Move the door around. Okay, done. moving on. What about, like, because you're living with the character, I guess you get to, like, consider more closely, like, what they sound like, I guess. Like, are there certain sonic elements that kind of get born out of 
their existence that you carry on? Again, it, it just kind of depends on the show and what's going on. Like, I mean, I mean, I will say that, for example, Carrie Washington has a certain quality in her voice and the way that she pronounces consonants that, that I really like and that I w- would always caution my dialogue editors not to RX them away. Because sometimes, especially young dialogue editors who haven't grown up having to do things the hard way, they'll just like highlight, you know, the entire line and go de-click. Yep. Yeah. So don't do don't that. Do that. Okay, don't do that. Because when you do that, you can suck the life out of the performance. And like I said, in, in her, her example, like her T's or just like certain consonants is part of her performance. And so if you take all the edges off by just like taking out all the ticks, then you're, again, you're, you're taking some of the life, some of the edge out of her performance. What are you super proud of, Marla, in your, in your career? What stands out to you? Well, I'm proud of my resume, I think. It's funny because like when I look at it, I'm like, oh, well, that kind of makes perfect sense because I was there the whole time. But maybe as an outsider, you look at it and like, oh, wow, that's pretty, pretty cool. But if I can do it, anybody can do it, first of all. But yeah, so I, I'm kind of, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of things like this, actually. I'm proud that I'm at the point in my career where people are asking me to speak. You know, like I got to be at Sony for the mix. It's this whole thing where post-production sound professionals come for a weekend and Pro Tools is there and all the different softwares are there and people are on stage and they're talking about their craft. And, and what was interesting about that, actually, just a side note, Steve Nelson, who was the mixer on that, HBO film, The Heist, he was one of the people in the audience, and I got to be on one of those panels, and it was a panel for dialogue for film and television, and I was scared to death, because it was like this huge auditorium um, of like 300 people or whatever, but but they were filled with people that I that I knew from my, my career too, and I thought, well, if I could talk to them one-on-one, I can talk to the group, and, and Steve actually drove down to hear me speak he's and and i ran into him i'm like oh what are you doing here he's like what do you mean what i'm doing here you were on the panel so i came but you know this is like 25 years later or whatever he's like i follow your career (laughs) i'm like well you're responsible for it because he was the one who called me and said that i needed to call the union and take the class you know i'm I'm proud that i'm at a point where people are asking me things like that and podcasts i'm also really proud of the young people that i've helped give breaks to and train. Like the woman that's now supervising Grey's Anatomy, she was a receptionist at Westwind and I took her under my wing and that's amazing. And now she's supervising Grey's Anatomy. And like, I love that. Wow. That's really cool. I just want to tell you real quick a story of kind of what not to do. <laughs> Please. <laughs> no, it's just, I remember what, again, when I first started at Sony, I was like 27 and, and I asked a dialogue editor or something if you could teach me something about the creative part of it because I really learned the technical part first and then the creative part later because I was so underwater with just learning what the job was technically that I didn't have time for the creative part until I got comfortable with that but so I asked him to to teach me some stuff and he's like he said this like he was kidding he's like oh well I can't tell you because you're younger and you'll work for cheaper and if I if I tell you what I know then you'll take my job ha 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 and I thought Okay, he's actually not kidding. And I laughed it off. And I thought, I thought in that moment, if I'm ever at his point in my career and I refuse to tell anybody everything that I know, then it's time for me to be a botanist or something. 
something else because you know, they've taken my soul, <laughs> you know, because I really feel like there's abundance and there is enough work to go around. And especially now, in some ways, it's harder, I think, now than it was when I was starting out, because when I was starting out, there were 10 assistants, you know, because there was a lot more labor intensive work. For example, they were transitioning to time code on the Nagra or even DAT. And so it would take a week to assemble a show. And, and the really, really rudimentary ones, I would have to transcribe the chronologue and then write down the scene and take and then listen to the entire scene and take, get to the line of dialogue and then manually assemble it. And now assistance, you know, it's all automated. Like the computer just does it all and then they just phase it. So because it's all automated, now a lot of times you have one assistant and that person's it's usually a guy and he's married with children and he's not going anywhere. So there's like a bottleneck because now nobody can get in and move up. Whereas when I was there, like all kinds of ways to get in and move up. On the other hand, when I was starting out, a cyber frame was like $100,000, like the machine itself. So there's no way that you could buy one and have it in your house and like be practicing. And now with Pro Tools, you know, you can get yourself set up for three or four thousand dollars or whatever and practice and learn and all that stuff. And also there's a lot more shows because now there's streaming. Um, so there's so much work that even though it might be harder to get those entry level jobs, if you could figure out those workarounds, like I was saying about like getting the union or getting somebody to trust you when you don't have the experience, there's always a workaround. There, there always is. And I used to think, well, somebody's got to do it, so why not me? And, and, and all of you, all of you can, can think the same way. The biggest piece of advice, I think, is to realize that personality is almost the biggest thing. Meaning, if you've got several people up for the same job and they all have equal technical chops and maybe even creative chops, the person who's going to get the job and the person who's going to have a long career is the one who's the easiest to be around. The one who is the best listener and, again, like takes the temperature of the room and, and is, is fun and doesn't get easily stressed out because there's going to be times when this business is super stressful. I mean, like ridiculous. But, but it's not brain surgery. Nobody's going to die. It seems like it sometimes. I found also that that's how I've gotten jobs. Like I got this job on a show called Once and Again, which was Marshall Herskovich and Ed Swick. And there were all these men that Greg sent out to the job um, and me and my resume. I only had the net and fame LA. I really was not mad about you. But you had the net. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, but these other guys had like resumes miles long and Greg called me he's like I don't know what you did but you got the job and so years later because now I still work with those two post producers uh Deborah Levitelli and Shauna Fisher on a lot of different shows in fact Deborah I did your honor I said to Deborah listen I'm not fishing I'm just truly curious like why in the world did you pick me like I really didn't have a resume that would uh, warrant that she's like well we figured that you were qualified because Greg wouldn't have sent anybody who wasn't qualified and then we just thought, well, who do we want to spend 50 hours a week with, you know, and we just kind of connected with you. And so that was like a little light bulb. And I do want to pass along that. Yes, obviously, learning the craft, learning the technical, learning the creative. And some of the creative you learn and some of it is just innate. 
You know what I mean? It's like either having an ear or not having an ear. Um, but personality key, uh, personality piece is, is really key. Oh, this was so much fun, Marla. You're you're a really good guest. I feel like I want to pick your brain a whole lot more. I know. I, I feel like you've given us so much great advice uh, for us and for up and coming engineers and editors, uh, sound supervisors. So if our listeners want to follow you, are you on Instagram? Are you on Facebook? What's the best way for people to connect with you on social media? Uh, I would say Facebook. Um, I'm on Instagram, but sadly, I never check that because I'm too busy on Twitter. Uh, but Facebook, you can, uh, you know, you can friend me on Facebook. Perfect. We will find you on Facebook. All right. Well, thank you, Marla. Again, it was such a pleasure. We'd love chatting with you, getting to know you and hearing about your career and just all of the invaluable advice that you've given. And uh, yeah, say bye to everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Check out soundgirls.org for more information. Applications are now open for the Sound Girl Scholarships of 2021, and we have four different scholarships available. The deadline for all scholarship applications is July 30th at 12 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. The Sound Girls board will review essays and will notify the winners via email in August. For more information on these scholarship opportunities, check out soundgirls.org soundgirls scholarships 2021.